Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hi, good evening. Welcome. And welcome to the LSE for those of you for whom it's the first time, but great to see so many of you familiar faces, staff and students here. My name is Ricky Burdett. I'm a director uh, of uh, LSE Cities, a research center here with many of my colleagues uh, involved sitting here with us. So I'm very pleased to welcome Kostas Bakoyanis um, to deliver a talk, as you know, entitled Moments of Polycrisis, a Mayor's Perspective. Um, the event is jointly organized with the Hellenic Observatory. We've done many things together, which is a great pleasure. And it's very, very good to also do this event in the week that we are, in fact, teaching together uh, with, as I said, my colleagues, the executive masters in cities. So there are a number of students here in the room. I can hardly call them students. They're uh, so eminent um, in terms of their backgrounds. And uh, there are those who will be following live on YouTube, uh, including other executive masters students. Um, Kostas, as you know, was the mayor of Athens for four years, from 2019 to 2023, representing New Democracy, which is the, government, the party in national government at the moment. And he lost the election last September uh, to Harris Dukas, who's from the Socialist Party, PASOK. We might talk about that a sure. little bit, yes. Um, previously, and this is important in terms of tonight's uh, sort of speculations, he was the governor of the central Greece, which is one of the administrative units in the country, and mayor of a smaller town called Carpenisi. He's remained um, post his uh, non-mayoral role, um, a member of the European Council on Foreign Relations, and is a member of United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network. Um, he, and you'll pick this up in a moment from his accent, he studied at Browns, he studied at Oxford, um, and at Harvard, where he's in fact now back for a period undertaking a, or running a sort of fellowship program there. Uh, many of you in the room will know that he comes from an extremely distinguished and well-known political family. Um, uh, Mum was the mayor of Athens about 20 years ago, right? Dora Bakoyanis. Um, I have to say that we've got to know each other with him and his team because for a couple of years, uh, LSE Cities worked with the administration on a series of sort of hot topics in terms of what's happening in Athens to do with governance, the arrangement of governance, uh, to do with uh, public space and to do with transport. So there's a sort of knowledge and acquaintance and beginning to understand how this city, which has been there for several thousand years, is really, really beginning to change. So this evening we'll sh um, he will share with us this sort of 13 years experience of working in local government from a pretty small town uh, to a big city of Athens. He'll talk about the lessons that national government can learn from the agility and responsiveness in cities and respond to the very different multiple crises as we'll hear that in Athens, but also elsewhere they've had to face. Um, there is not going to be a live sort of Twitter exchange, so, but there is a hashtag, which is at um, uh, LSE Athens. Um, if you have a phone, please put it on silent, but do keep it on. And the event is being recorded and will be made available uh, in a few days, weeks from now. The format is very, very simple. After my introduction, 
Um, Costas will speak about 20, 30 minutes about the experience, as I say, of facing different crises at different times at different regional scales. We'll then sit down and have a sort of 15, 20 minute exchange on a number of issues which I think will be of relevance to all of us, all of you, and then we'll open up the floor to questions uh, from many of you. When we come to that, can you please wait for a microphone? <clears throat> um, and um, if you want, stand up. If not, sit down. Uh, but it'd be great to know who you are. Um, and be brief, please. Uh, and we'll try and have as much of a Q&A for the final session. So that's the format for the evening. Uh, and can you welcome Costas Bakoyanis? Well, uh, good evening. I would like to thank the LSE for this really kind invitation. It is indeed a pleasure, as it is a privilege. And I would like to take this opportunity to particularly thank your very own Richard Bardet, a brilliant mind, I'm sure you'll agree. And of course, the schools, cities, and urban age program for the great uh, cooperation and the Hellenic Observatory. Now, I would like to keep my opening remarks as brief as possible. I think it's much more interesting for us to engage in conversation and take as much time as possible. So let me quickly set the stage. Literally, almost every day, we confront crises. Just think of last week's headlines. So much is happening in such a short time all around the world. With social media feeding the frenzy, at times it does feel that we are becoming crisis addicts. And in an increasingly complex and dynamic world of multiple and overlapping crises, local authorities often find themselves at the eye of a perfect storm. Think of New York City or Chicago. Both cities struggle with refugee waves. Think of Jakarta or Lagos. They struggle with floods. Lima with air pollution. Miami or Manila, amongst others who are dealing with rising sea levels. All these cities struggling with the climate crisis. And of course, think of our very own Athens. Flashback to 2019. Five years, two wars, and one pand pandemic ago. Another life. Athens at the time was at the epicenter of another perfect storm, an unprecedented, deep, and traumatic economic and financial crisis, which had turned the city into a social bomb. Unemployment, sky high, especially and most dramatically amongst the young, huge, painful inequalities, a diaspora of talent all around the globe, and rising numbers of refugees. It wasn't just the precious time the city had lost 
equal, more or less, to half a generation. It was also that Athens had slid dramatically backwards. We treated on all levels in terms both of the services and infrastructure. So the city needed a creative shock, not just to bounce back, but to bounce forward. At the same time, I think we should note that Athens was no longer the only game in town. A historic transformation began in our, in our outskirts, not because of Athens, but despite of it. Historically, I'm sure many of you know, Athens was built since the creation of the modern Greek state with its back turned to the sea. Now, however, with the transformation of the former international airport and the surrounding waterfront into a gigantic coastal park, Elinicon, actually larger than London's Hyde Park, a profound change was taking place. So there was a real and at the time present danger that social and economic life would move to the coast and the city center itself would be abandoned, forsaken, the backyard of economic growth. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, Athens was not just competing with Tel Aviv, with Rome or with Istanbul, it was actually competing with itself. Now, I'm sure you've all heard that for the Chinese, the word for crisis also means opportunity. And for the Greek speaking amongst you, I'm sure you know that for the ancient Greeks, never to be outdone, crises were defined as turning points. Actually, the words crisis and krino. So here is the elevator version of my argument tonight. Never, never, never let a good crisis go to waste. Which begs the obvious question. So do we have a say? How close to us are decisions made? Do we have a share in crisis management? Do we shape our crisis response? And when I say we, let me be very, very clear. I'm referring to local authorities. The closest democratic institution to the citizen. So what about it? Are all politics local? What do we do when crises hit our neighborhoods? Are there actually local solutions to global problems, or is it just a cliche? Are local authorities, as some would have it, too small, too weak, too feckless, to respond to a pandemic, to the climate crisis, to immigration refugees, or even to the very challenges to our democracy? Or should it actually be better left to international organizations and, government, and governments? Now, ladies and gentlemen, as Ricky Candle noted, I have served in local government for 13 long years. Believe me, every year was a dog year. It counted for seven, from a rural to an urban 
context. And from a small city, for me, that's the end of the world, but that's another discussion, all the way to a big dynamic metropolis. And having known both wins and losses, and if I may say so, having never shied away from battle, I stand before you to argue that it has become vital to draw from the local perspective when tackling global issues. It's very simple, really. At the local level, it's about you, your daily life. From the moment you step out of home in the morning, all the way to your return at night. And if you think about it, it makes complete sense. We live in a world of networks, not hierarchies. Traditional top-down approaches, bureaucratic approaches, do not offer the agility and the responsiveness that is essential for crisis management. When states have their hands tied, it is local authorities, alongside with civil society and the private sector, that need to take the initiative and lead the way to propel the shift from debate to action. Historically, after all, cities have always been laboratories of progress, have always been breeding grounds of symbiosis. On a local level, it's much easier to cooperate, to innovate, to adapt, to develop bottom-up, whole of society, context-specific, and resident or citizen-centric responses. And let me also add, I think it's actually quite important, that these grassroots are also the most effective response to the politics of, grievance, of grievance, grievances, to quote the economist from a fortnight ago. You know the politics that are expressed in Europe by Urban, in the United States by Trump, those dark forces of statism, of anti-globalism, of populism, that can so easily slide into authoritarianism. Now, of course, all this is much easier said than it is done. One thing is clear. The big picture does matter. In other words, one needs to know where one wants to go. If you just let the wind take you, you will be lost without a compass in an open sea. One needs a clear sense of direction. So where are we today? And where do we want to go? Today in Athens, but I would also claim around the world, we, start, we stand at a critical juncture in world history, facing daunting and complex challenges. We must confront the climate crisis, power digital innovation, and at the same time, battle social inequalities. I'm sure you will agree that our work is cut out for us. The climate crisis looms large, and cities are the, are the forefront, with rising temperatures, extreme weather events, and sea level rise threatening 
our own very, exist our very own existence. To combat these challenges, we need to prioritize sustainable urban planning. This means, in the case of Athens, of quote-unquote climatizing each and every decision, from new cooling materials on sidewalks or from a network of new pocket parks, all the way to investing in our natural lungs, our hills, our national garden, and the so-called double regeneration, which essentially is an urban project building a new green city within the city in a long forsaken area. By doing so, we can actually reduce our carbon footprint and create healthier and more livable cities for all. At the same time, AI and the digital revolution is transforming the way we live, the way we work, the way we interact with each other, offering new opportunities for innovation and growth. However, this digital transformation also presents challenges such as digital exclusion and privacy concerns. From smart infrastructure to digital services, technology does have the potential to improve efficiency, connectivity, and quality of life. In this regard, for example, in Athens we digitalized 100% of our city services. However, we must also ensure that the benefits of digitalization are accessible to all citizens. This requires breaking the digital divide, providing affordable and quick internet access, and fostering digital literacy. By leveraging technology responsibly, we can create more inclusive and more connected minorities, communities. Finally, social inequalities continue to persist with marginalized communities facing barriers to access education, healthcare, and economic opportunities. Social equality, however, must be at the front of our urban transformation efforts. Cities all around the world are home to diverse populations, and it is essential that everyone has access to opportunities and resources. A challenge made even more acute in times of emergency, such as the pandemic. This means, amongst others, in Athens, investing in creating shelters for the homeless, upgrading our city's health clinics and healthcare services, significantly lowering city taxes, providing incentives for small businesses. It also means fostering a sense of community and belonging where everyone feels valued and included. By prioritizing social equality, we can create cities that are not only sustainable and technologically advanced, but also fair and just. Now, of course, a city's work is much more 
than what we can put on paper or what we can actually talk about. A city is a living, breathing organism. The most apt analogy to a city's work would probably be that of a decathlon, a combined event in athletics consisting of 10 different sports. Now, it is impossible, to be very frank, to do great in all competitions. A team may have a fantastic performance, a gold medal, running 100 meters, or doing the long jump, be above average or mediocre, a silver medal, as it were, when it comes to short put or the high jump, and lag behind a bronze medal, or actually probably nothing, at the 400 meters. To compete, however, cities must adapt and evolve. In the case of Athens, we had no time to lose. We had to accomplish a lot in a short period of time. That meant that we had to work both bottom-up and top-down. It meant that we had to go back to basics, reinvent our services, invest in our infrastructure, deliver on our plan to revitalize the city, and reawaken what we saw as a, as a sleeping giant. Now, that was the case even if it meant that we had to push all the buttons at the same time. But to do so, Athens as an institution had to change. We had to see, in other words, whether our elephant could actually dance. Because, you know, during the crisis, the city had shrunk. The city had shrunk economically, organizationally, and culturally. Shrunk in the minds of the Athenians, but also shrunk in the minds of its civil servants. Now, we had a plan. I spoke about it a bit earlier. But that was not enough. It was time for a paradigm shift. What does this entail? Number one, funds. In 2019, the budget of the city of Athens stood at a bit more than 600 million euros. Now, compared to other modern metropolis, available funds were embarrassingly low, while city taxes were unreasonably high. Doing more with less, but also utilizing European funds and designing new financial tools, we're able to take the budget to more than 1 billion, 100 million euros. And at the same time, cut taxes by 10%. Number two, innovation. We did not hesitate to restructure the city organization, design new vehicles for policy, including, for example, founding a new agency for National Garden and for, for our parks, and developing a new program called Adopt the City, a program which enabled foundations, corporations, and individuals to contribute to the city through significant donations, which actually went 
to the millions and millions. Number three, common sense. In other words, confronting ideological stereotypes and anachronisms. Now, I know this may be a bit hard to explain in the UK. However, the city of Athens was trapped in a statist dogma that curtailed cooperation with the private sector and prohibited outsourcing. We left the thinking behind us, overcoming at times intense pushback. Contrary to partisan logic, we actually followed a results-driven policy. In the immortal world, words of Chairman Mao, it doesn't matter what is the color of the cat as long as it catches mice. Four, activism, playing offense, or punching above our weight, as it were. The city of Athens grew way beyond its traditional historical remit. On the other one hand, we took on big projects that were traditionally left to the central government, like the double generation I mentioned earlier, or Omonia Square. On the other hand, we expanded the city, adding to its purview, to its authority, historical landmarks, like the theater of Lecabetus Hill that was actually reopened, the theater in Bros, the Picionis kiosk, the Greek Gaudi, that is, on Philopabu Hill. And during the pandemic, we actually designed two shelters for homeless and homeless drug addicts. Now, all projects were completed on time, except one, infamously, the one that moved forward on the central boulevard of Athens Panepistimiu was delayed and caused lots of frustration. But looking back, what matters is that these projects were actually completed and that the city changed for the first time after literally two decades. Now, fast forward to 2024, present day, five years later. Of course, for everything that has been accomplished, there is so much more that needs to be done. But Athens is breaking one record after the other, attracting more investment than ever, attracting more tourism than ever, and implementing, or to be exact, should be implementing, the biggest public investment program in its history. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, I am proud to report that this is a moment of Athens, a moment in a long journey, a moment nevertheless. Ladies and gentlemen, one final thought. Looking ahead, we spoke about 2019. We spoke about 2024. Let's speak about 2030. Because you know what? The battle lines are already drawn. And make no mistake, where you all stand is important and will shape our way of life. And please, please, please remember, this is not a political or ideological fight. Party, partisan politics,
have no place, so no labels, but also no easy shortcuts. The first battle is a battle for square meters. We live in packed, dense cities. Athens is the second densest city in Europe. Ricky can say so much about this. And our urban environment, whether we like it or not, is already to a great extent built. It's already to a great extent shaped. So neither expect the return of Baron Haussmann, who famously took his cannons in 19th century Paris and redesigned the city demolishing buildings and opening new boulevards, nor a move to a newly planned city like Brasilia. This means, in real life, that every centimeter of public space counts. Where a, park, a car parks today, there could be trees tomorrow. For every lane of asphalt, there could be a park. So first battle, square meters. Second battle, cars. In the 20th century, cities were built around cars. In the 21st century, we need to rebuild our cities around ourselves, around human beings. Air pollution kills. Noise disturbs. It's about our own health, but it is also about the health of the planet, with cities actually being responsible for more than 60% of CO2 emissions around the world. Nevertheless, if we want to be frank, People hate the idea of car-free cities until they actually live in one. In Oslo, in London, in Athens, we experienced massive backlash. But make no mistake, cars are public enemy number one. And make no mistake, if we want to ensure that our cities will be livable in 10 or 20 years, we need to leave cars behind. The third battle is over land use. Cities thrive with so-called mixed land use. A few meters from the Athens City Hall at the heart of the city, one can find incredible boutique hotels, Michelin, level restaurants, but also one can shop spices, doorknobs, and even anchors. Yes, you heard me correctly, anchors. This is our DNA. This combination of functions, residential, commercial, cultural, or institutional functions that coexist, traditional, and modern, all around one center, and this center being the permanent resident. The greatest danger for Athens today is that it's going to become an ancient Greek Disneyland. 
So yes, we want to change, but we want to change without losing our soul. I will stop here. I will thank you so much, and I'm very much looking forward to our discussion. Many thanks. Come, come. No, that one's oh, yours. That's actually oh, yours. Yeah. Let's start by taking you straight back to the perfect storm. Please do. Uh, which, which you reminded us all. You know, the, the perfect storm, which uh, there were many vectors of that storm. There was the refugee crisis, the finance crisis, COVID, um, and I guess much else. Right? Um, sitting here a number of years ago, we had your predecessor. George Caminis, who in a way was in the middle of that storm, to, to a degree you inherited some of it. And uh, it was very clear that he was really struggling to deal with all these issues um, in, in a way that in, in, you couldn't do it alone, that he had to you know, de deal with uh, uh, different stakeholders, different groups. Now, you've talked quite a lot about that, about you know, uh, how uh, you've got to get buy-in from the different constituencies. But you didn't give us too much detail. Right? I'd like to, I mean, I think it would be useful for us here to know, you know, how did you plug into that social capital which Athens has? Um, you know, one level one could say that there's a disengaged or historically disengaged population which had to be engaged, get angry and show what they feel. And, you know, citizens groups, NGOs, Etc. were sort of are there. So, how did you actually? Who did you work with, and what made a difference? And in, in a sense, that's the your bottom upside. Then I also want to ask you, how the hell did you deal with national government? Okay. Uh, which, which is, one thing at the back. Yeah, but that's later. Yeah. Well, um, that's a great question. I spoke about the need for bottom-up crisis management. Why? Because I believe that local authorities are more flexible, more agile, mm. and more responsive. Which means... Than who? Than central governments. Right. Which means... Or international organizations. Which means that local authorities are able, bottom-up, on a grassroots level, to build alliances. Often overcoming political and ideological lines. Let's go back to Athens. My predecessor was, in a way, his hand was forced because he experienced, much like we experienced, and I experienced from another position at the time, a state that was quite literally falling apart. Many of us are trying to forget the economic and financial crisis. However, that doesn't mean that it hasn't left a trauma. Think of it this way. The biggest economic and financial crisis in modern economics in a country in peacetime. So we <coughs> built naturally and organically society built defense mechanisms. We did the same thing afterwards during our term. And let me give one very concrete example. During the pandemic, 
the state, I think wisely, suggests that we all stay at home for to ensure social isolation and to protect public health. There was one issue, however. Many of us didn't have a home to stay in. And I'm referring to the homeless that actually populated the streets of Athens. So in, in record time, we had to give these people an alternative. What did this mean? Creating a new shelter that could house up to 400 people with dignity. Doing this entailed very quickly securing a building from the state, moving forward in cooperation with the organizations of civil society, which had invaluable know-how and experience in creating an alliance. In a, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that we were and we still are running the shelter together, plus engaging the private sector for donations and contributions in kind or in cash. So in a way, everyone came together. And right now, Athens prides itself that it probably has the most modern uh, and advanced homeless shelter in Europe. Could the city of Athens do this on its own? Never. It was all about coming together. And which other, I mean, you, you mentioned the homeless as a group, um, and therefore with NGOs presumably highly exactly. experienced. Um, and that is that linked to the refugee crisis? I'll never forget a statistic, which may be exaggerated or not, but over a certain period of time, more than half a million or up to a million refugees passed through Athens, not stopped in Athens, and exactly. that which creates a sort of transient population uh, with a series of transient problems. They were passing through Athens, and they were taking the northern route to the borders. Mm -hmm. On their way, they would pass through my region. I was head of region right. of Central Greece. I still remember 2015, 2016, refugees walking on the national highway. The first time, we, they came to, to the capital of the region, a city called Lamia. We were notified that a few hundreds of people had arrived at a gas station on the city's outskirts. Please, imagine, zero preparation. Uh, the state was nowhere. And this is not a political criticism for the government at the time. The state was nowhere because it was right in the middle of the crisis. And I will never forget going to the gas station on a Sunday evening to greet these people and trying to understand what they need and what can we do for them. And my first question, because there were kids, um, they are the same age as my kids, I said, what do the kids want? Now, I must confess, I thought they would, kids would want chocolate or a toy. The kids needed socks. You did? Socks. Because their parents okay. explained to me that by walking all those literally thousands of kilometers, their socks melted. What was the response? Literally in 48 hours, 
we took over. We took over a state building, again, with the cooperation of civil society, NGOs, and the private sector. And we created um, a refugee welcome center, which actually continued to operate for many, many years. It's still open as we speak. Very quickly, it became um, a part-time for the rest of the country. Uh, international organizations would come and visit us and ask us how we did it, so the rest of the country could do it as well. And I would tell them what I tell you now, that the secret was very simply that we put our ego, uh, we let our ego back. We, we did, and we engaged all together and we built alliances, and we worked together to get things done. So this is really a concrete example of what you were saying about a city, local authority, having the ability, the resilience to be nimble exactly. and react to. And I think probably anyone who's involved in city government or living in a city has seen that, and particularly during the COVID years, and how different cities have responded differently. And uh, in the UK, you know, London, responded differently to Manchester, responded differently to Glasgow, and that debate is being had right now through a major sort of inquiry. But the flip side of the coin, and you've already referred to it, is um, national government, right? Now, you have um, connections with national government. You you've, um, um, can pick up a phone and speak to national government, uh, but that doesn't necessarily deliver uh, the sort of the flexibility that you need. What I'd like you to talk a little bit about, this is something that we, in the work we did together, became very, very clear, is that Athens is this big, right? Greater Athens is that big. Um, and actually, the mayor, you, had responsibility for a relatively small area, not like, say, the mayor of Paris, who is only responsible for two million people in a 11 million Ile-de-France region. That, that's how it works. Sadiq Khan is lucky that he's actually responsible for the 9 million people who live within the M25. So that, let's call it alignment between where people live, work, and pay their taxes and all that. In your case, that's not the case, right? Can you say a little bit more how that, um, let's call it political misalignment, in, potentially intentional, for 40, 50 years to keep the city down, you know, keep it small, keep it uh, not, not, not uh, create risks for national government. How did it tie your hands? And since you're not mayor now, you, you can tell us what you would say to the prime minister. Um, what should he change? Well, in my time in serving local government, I've had to work with many prime ministers, many ministers, many deputy ministers, many secretary generals in ministries from various political parties. I've always done my best to cooperate, overcoming any political or ideological biases we all have. And I must say that overall, um, I have no complaints. But I'm not talking about... I know. I, I'll tell you what I'm saying. I have no complaints from any government. Right. I mentioned earlier the... the and I'm going to give again two concrete examples and connect the, the examples. Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier the, the case of the refugees in central Greece. At the time, there was a Syriza government. 
they helped us. They provided necessary funding. They solved a number of bureaucratic issues. Much in the same way, when we had the homeless shelter in Athens, the government helped us. Why do I feel the need to say this? Because I have a natural distaste for creating easy political alibis and finding excuses. In the usual political games mayors play, not only in Greece, but around the world, because I've heard my colleagues around the world do the same thing, is point to someone else with a finger. Oh, Sadiq Khan. I, He'll say the same thing. Sadiq is a great yeah. guy and a good no, friend. No, no, he will point the finger. He's a great guy and a good friend, yeah, and I think future. a very mayor. Yeah. So we need to be very clear that it is about assuming our responsibility. You can't just, you know, have the positive and pass on the negative. Having said that, there is one thing that united all the governments I've worked with, whether they came from the center left or from the center uh, left, a common cynical uh, distrust for local authorities. Hmm. Unfortunately, in Greece, we still reproduce an anachronistic, Napoleonic, hyper-bureaucratic system where all power has to be centralized. I think that's a mistake. You heard me say earlier that I believe that we live in a time of networks and not hierarchies. I think that's more suitable for the 19th century than for the 21st century. More authority needs to be passed to local, authority, to local government, whether it's on the city or on a state level, that's number one. And number two, we need to clear up who does what. Unfortunately, as we speak, there are roads, avenues in Athens where the sidewalk is the city's responsibility, the asphalt is the region's responsibility, but the traffic is the state's responsibility. Now, I'm sure you can imagine and, that nothing... And, and the public transport subway system is also... Exactly. Yeah. So I'm sure you can imagine that nothing can get done. Now, again, why have we created the system? It didn't happen by chance. It happened by design. Because there is this mm. political misconception that when no one is responsible for anything, nobody will be blamed for anything. In reality, mm. we are all blamed for everything, and it just feeds on distrust and disappointment and frustration on the side of the citizens. You were going to give an, maybe a concrete example of how your hands were tied, so to speak. Which policy did you try and implement whereby, in effect, because you lacked the political powers, you were unable to implement within your four years? Uh, I'll give you um, a very simple example. Um, freights in the city of Athens, meaning freight, uh, freight management, meaning when can, uh, um, I'm trying to find You mean trucks and things? Trucks. Yeah. When are trucks allowed to enter the city right. to deliver goods? To deliver goods. Right. Now, in most cities around the world, um, usually trucks are not allowed during the day. Mm -hmm. 
It's either early in the morning or late at night. I thought it made absolute sense. I was mistaken. Apparently, it didn't for everyone. Because it was, it was outside the city's no. um, authority. So we had to negotiate with the state itself, for the, with the region, excuse me, the region mm -hmm. of Attica. After agreeing, and believe me, it wasn't easy, we had to negotiate with the state. And then, unfortunately, we ran out of time when we had to negotiate with the police to actually impose mm -hmm. um, the, the new regulation which had been approved. So, uh, it, it's surreal. I mean, uh, and unfortunately, uh, the city and the citizens are paying the price. Yeah, I mean, this is why when you, you, know, you said very forcefully what your personal priorities were in terms of issues of justice and environment, controlling pollution, uh, dealing with the heat problem, which is extreme, of course, in your city because of where you are and how much of the city is concrete, physically concrete. Uh, one, one really does wonder how much it's nearly impossible to do things if uh, the decisions about public transport, about things that you've just said about regulation of traffic at some level are actually in, in the hands of uh, authorities further up. Is that something that can change? Yes, absolutely. Uh, of course it can change. Um, but it will depend mm. on, on pro obviously, the government, the political parties, the party system. But it will also depend on uh, the new generation of local government officials. If, because I think it's much more pertinent that we talk about ourselves, even if I don't think I can consider myself in the new generation, but I feel a bit like a dinosaur. <laughs> Uh, then about the others, which means that we have to assume the responsibility. We have to ask for more responsibility. We have to be prepared to assume the risk and stop just, you know, shifting blame pointlessly uh, everywhere else. One of the, you made reference to the um, new commission effectively that was, uh, you created with, with national government. Um, support, I imagine, to deal with the public spaces and the parks mm. of the city. Um, we were a little bit involved at the time to know how you were setting up. And the idea was to actually take some of the public parks you have, not that many, but uh, very noticeable, Philopapos Hill, obviously the National, the National Gardens, etc. Has it worked? Well, it has. The idea, let me say what the idea was. Yeah. First of all, it wasn't our idea. Something similar uh, is the case in London. Mm. Well, here uh, they're, the, they're the royal parks. But, yeah. yeah, when I say yeah. something similar, yeah. 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 a parallel, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, structure. In Vienna, if I'm not mistaken, in New York City, what is the idea? That if we're talking about the climate crisis, we need to modernize our way of thinking, which means that we need know-how, we need expertise, and business as usual is not enough. Mm -hmm. Now, the city of Athens was running on fumes, basically running with business as usual and with the same logic from the 70s and the 80s. So we needed a vehicle 
to bring in new thinking. We couldn't do it horizontally throughout the city, it wouldn't work. It was too much, too fast. So the idea was to start with a national garden. We did that. I think we were very successful. The national garden of 2024 has no relation with the national garden of 2019. We utilize the expertise of uh, uh, Bavarian, uh, Bavarian know-how uh, from London, from cities around the world, uh, and, this, and the garden advanced. And I think that now we are ready to move to the next stage, which is to, to transfer the lessons learned from the garden to other public gar uh, parks and public spaces in the city. I do hope that it will get done because there is, there is a, a treasure of knowledge that shouldn't be lost. Yeah, so in that sense, your appetite for innovation, institutional innovation, has not been sort of quashed as a result of some of the frustrations that you may have had. Shall we now open up questions from the floor, and then there are one or two other issues we might sort of end up with. So there are microphones um, coming round. Um, if you want to, please stand up so that the rest of the room can see you, mainly for that. Uh, say who you are and then um, be brief. So one, your lady just being, you can't see her because she's behind the column. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Hi. Um, good evening. Thanks so much. Um, for context, I'm Ileana. I'm Greek. I come from Galaxidi, which you probably know, but I lived in Athens for many years throughout COVID as well. I guess um, you spoke a lot about making something out of a crisis. I was there during COVID. It was a hard time. and. Um, the city tried to make something out of it. Some things worked, some didn't. You also know that. I'm wondering, as you see Athens now, and um, there are many crises ongoing, there's a climate crisis, there's an affordability crisis, which do you see as the most relevant for Athens, and I guess the biggest opportunity for Athens to make something better? out of the vision of a more balanced city, I guess, balanced between tourism, social equity, uh, better youth opportunities. Mark. Uh, I think this is a very, um, this is a really good question because we've been talking a lot about what has happened. We need to talk, I think, much more now about what needs to happen. Um, you heard me mention earlier that I think that there are three battlegrounds. One is public space, uh, square meters. I'm codifying it. Two cars, less cars. And three, mixed land use. I think we need to move on all three much more aggressively. Um, public space, we, made, we took steps forward. I understand that it wasn't always easy. 
because it's connected with uh, mobility and with cars. However, we need to do much more than that. Um, Athens would be unlivable in 10 or 20 years with rising temperatures. Our kids will just leave the city. Um, and it's, we need a soft landing rather than have a hard landing in 10 or 20 years down the road. So if it was up to me right now, it would be much more aggressive. However much uh, politically uh, there might be a cost on public space um, and cars. And I think we need to get much more innovative on mixed land use because it's also connected with property prices. Um, right now, many Athenians are finding it impossible, especially young Athenians, to live in the city. Um, the government has taken a number of steps in the right direction, but we need to be much more ambitious than that. Um, we need to openly talk about social housing and community housing. Not the social housing that we are used to in Athens, but the social housing and community housing that people are talking about in Europe. It's no coincidence, and Ricky, you know much more about it than I do, that many international and European architectural competitions, their, first, their prizes have gone to social projects. Uh, there is a lot of know-how around, uh, around Europe which we can use. Um, we had a plan uh, about actually setting up a new agency. Uh, we had talked about that. That would actually move forward. Um, there was also buy-in from the government. It took some time, but there, there was some buy-in. Um, I do hope uh, it will happen sooner rather than later. I mean, there's just a s small point on the housing. I mean, of course, Athens has nearly developed its, its own DNA in terms of its built form of how it deals with social difference. You have apartment blocks. Yes. I'm going to, how do you pronounce Polkadia. it? Polkadia. Uh, say that properly. Yeah, there's, I don't know how many, how many of you have actually been to Athens? Okay, great. So if uh, you've been to Athens, or if you see pictures of Athens, you'll probably see the, the Polkadia, which are buildings with many floors, resident buildings. Now, the Palikatikia will never win any prize of aesthetics. No architectural prizes for the Palikatikia. And this is my most polite way of describing it. However, in terms of building social capital, the Palikatikia has been invaluable. Yeah. Because at the same address, different uh, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds coexist. So on the first floor, it could be the small shopkeeper. The third floor, the lawyer, the doctor. The sixth or the floor, uh, the, the businessman. Their children play together. They live in the same address. It's, go to the same school? They don't, some, no, they no. used to go to the same school. That's true. Now they go and they don't. This is for us um, a great legacy, which we need to work with. Right, so that was a little bit of an interruption. Sorry, that was, but, yeah. uh, so the set, I think, second question. Good evening, Mr. Bakoyanis. My name is Theodoros. I'm studying here my master's degree in urbanization and development. Thank you very much for your talk. You. Actually, I would like to ask you, my question is about housing as well. Uh, we have seen an unprecedented rise in housing and re rental prices in Athens and in many other uh, Greek cities in the past years. 
And I would like, if it's possible for you to expand more on these ideas of, of what policies a local government can follow and what are actually the tools for social housing or if it's possible for rental um, freezes to be implemented or even regulate if regulating Airbnb is a possible solution for Athens. Thank okay. you very much. Uh, I think um, spot on. Just take a step back and see the big picture. The big picture is that during the crisis, um, property prices uh, remained low. Uh, the, the economy is now growing, which is great. But um, property prices rose disproportionately fast. And they remain high, and in this they are actually counter-cyclical uh, with the rest of Europe. So that means that it's very clear that there is an argument to be made for state intervention. Now, I'm a great believer, make, don't take me wrong, in free markets. I'm a, a liberal, deep in my heart. However, I think that right now the state must intervene. How can the state intervene, to be very practical? Number one, you mentioned uh, Airbnb. We've been asking for this to materialize for this reform, I think for two years now, three years now. We have a whole proposal uh, to try to put in a few words. Basically, Airbnb should be regulated on a city level rather than a state level. And how should the city regulate it? In, as a dynamic tool with, it, with a different approach in different neighborhoods. There are neighborhoods in Athens that, have, that can't afford anymore Airbnb. I don't want to mention names, but I'm sure you can think of some. There we need to pu push the brakes. There are neighborhoods in Athens where we want more Airbnb. There we can move forward. We need a mapping map to map the city. We need a dynamic tool. It, it was all prepared by our administration, but it needs to be uh, legislated so we can move forward. That's number one. Number two, uh, visas, uh, golden visas. It's very easy to be populist about it and say, oh, golden visas are responsible for like the end of uh, the world. I know there have been similar discussions in many cities around, around Europe. My personal opinion is that, uh, that, that it's not black or white, it's gray. We need golden visas, but we need to increase the, the level, the, the threshold, thank you, so, the threshold uh, that is being paid for golden visas. I think it's too no. low been increased once, it needs to be increased much more. Uh, number three, I mentioned earlier um, the state, the new agency that we need. Uh, it's very, very important. Number four, we need to be much more aggressive when it comes to land use. We need to designate areas as residential only or very small uh, shops. Uh, I love tourism. It's great for our economy. We have broken every record. But, like in everything in life, there is too much of too much. We need to be careful about how we move forward. I mean, the, the, on, on this one point of, of mixed land use, which you say is important to 
Am I right in uh, thinking that actually you, the city, don't own that much land, no. relatively speaking? So that's quite difficult to make that level of intervention. Some of it is military land, some of it is uh, belongs but, to others. But, but there and, are. And I mean, the, here in London, the mayor has been able to intervene a little bit where there's transport, land owned by Transport for London, which he then controls. I'm just saying that's. That's been partly helpful, but otherwise he's working through the local authorities. Sorry. But there are tools that we can develop that are based on the cooperation between the public and the private sector. Uh, there are public buildings right now. Some of them have lots of value. There's also private interest, investment interest. If we sit down around the table, uh, I think we can agree on, develop, on a development that is socially friendly. Uh, again, uh, other cities have done it. I don't see why Athens can't. And of course, Barcelona has actually adopted this control of Airbnb and hotels in different zones. There's greater flexibility Which is in the different parts of the city to spread sort of uh, the, the tourists around. Which is what we propose. You're doing that? No, that's our proposal. Oh, okay. Hello. Good, uh, yes, this is working. Hello. Good evening. Uh, my name is Dr. Rajat Nath. I'm a consultant in economics and engineering. I had the pleasure of organizing an international conference in business and investment in Athens with your predecessor, uh, Mayor Avramopoulos, a long time ago. Um, my question concerns the public finances of the city, which I understand last year you managed to get to, to revenue uh, at 23%, which resulted in Moody's upgrading the city of Athens' uh, rating. Um, Concerning moving forward, which doesn't directly concern you, obviously, um, with higher interest rates and higher debt servicing as a result, um, because it was a primarily denominator effect, you increased the revenues, not reduced the debt. How sustainable, in your view, will this be, and how will this impact uh, the city? Uh, I mean, this is a bit of a technical discussion, but it's a very interesting question. Um, the answer is that our rates, the rates we pay are actually locked in for a long period of time. Um, and we have actually renegotiated two of our loans over the last few years. So we feel very, very safe and very secure and very comfortable. Um, as you kindly noted, uh, Moody's upgraded Athens twice uh, in my term. Uh, I think I can, it's not an exaggeration to say that Moody's would actually have upgraded us even more, but we cannot go over the state uh, level. Uh, so, yes, I'm happy to report that our finances are in a really good shape and can actually be an example uh, for the rest of the country, um, including, amongst others, because this was not, this is an accomplishment of many administrations and not just one administration. Over the past 20 years, uh, the city has run very in, in health economics. Now, obviously, we took it to the next step. You know, as I mentioned, we went from 600 and something million euros to 1 billion and um, But having said that, um, overall, the history of the city of Athens is something that all mayors, starting from the myth of Ramopoulos to now the current mayor, can be proud of. All right, let's um, see some more hands. Uh, gentleman over here, then you. And then you. Yeah. Please. Good evening. 
thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Christos Eschioglou. I come from Thessaloniki. And so allow me to ask something about my hometown. Based on your experience as a mayor of a small town and the biggest city in Greece, why do you think it takes too long to get things done in Thessaloniki? And do you think that the big degree of decentralization plays a role uh, in that? I wish I could, I could give you an, an answer. I, I, I'm sorry, I know a politician should never say I don't know, but I don't know enough. I don't know enough about Thessaloniki. Um, my sense as a visitor is that Thessaloniki has incredible potential. Um, but I feel, speaking with friends, that it is trapped in a risk-averse political culture. Which local. By the, local. Local. Yeah. Which, by the way, is the case in many Greek cities. I want to be very frank and very transparent. If you want to get something done, you need to take risks and you need to be prepared to spend political capital and even lose elections. If not, then a city just remains stagnant. I have a, a, I've been sharing with Ricky a lovely story uh, from the mayor of Tel Aviv. So the mayor of Tel Aviv has been mayor since 1996, believe it or not. He's now running for his sixth term mm. Oh, he's a great guy, fantastic friend. So we were talking, and I said, so you want to be re-elected with 60, 70 percent? He said, no. I said, 50 percent? He's like, no. I'm trying to understand what he's saying. All politicians want as many votes as possible. I mean, it's the rule of politics. He said, no, I want a bit over 40 percent, just enough to be re-elected. I said, why? He said, because if you get 60 or 70%, that means you don't do anything. You're around. If you do something, there's going to be a reaction. You're going to say yes, you're going to say no. Some people will be happy, some people will be Hannah happy. One, some people will be agree, some people will not agree. You will have corners, but you'll get something done. So, if I may offer a suggestion, for not only for Saloniki, but for mayors, I think, around Greece and around the world, is sometimes just, you know, put, put your skin in the game. So which is the biggest political risk you took? I think the, um, clearly, the, what we did with the, the public space yeah. and mobility and cars, it was a very conscious mm. risk. We knew that there would be a lot of pushback. We had seen it before uh, in the history of Athens, when Dionysio Pagitu was pedestrianized, when Enumu was pedestrianized. There was always a lot of uh, frustration and anger. Uh, we knew we would face a similar tidal wave, but uh, we thought as a team that it is a fight worthwhile. And I think that looking back, um, we may have made mistakes along the way, but overall, the end result shows that it was the right thing to do. 
So I think the question here. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Bagayans, for your speech. Uh, I'm Ekthras. I grew up in Athens. I did my undergraduate in Warwick University, so I lived in a small town called the Royal Leamington Spa, and now I'm doing my master's in, in uh, London and Imperial. Uh, what really resonated to me about your speech was this double-edged sword or this love and hate relationship many people have with cars, especially in cities in transition between walkability and high car use. And we love the individuality and the freedom that the cars give you and the ability to be spontaneous and uh, uh, make transportation decisions on the fly, if you will. But as you said, a lot of people, once they live in walkable cities, they, they tend to love them. Um, so I, I, I had the chance to do this transition from a very walkable city by, just by scale, because I lived in Leamington Spa, everything, the biggest distance was 15 minutes away walking, to now in London where everything's so far away, seemingly. And I really enjoyed uh, using public transport, using bikes. So I thought, what if I was in Mr. Bakoyanis's seat? What, I would, what would I do to my hometown of Athens? And I thought, uh, uh, there's several issues holding back Athens from being like London in terms of public transport and bikes. And one thing that came to mind was hills. The first time I... Came I, to mind was hills, hills, like hills, uh, yeah. slope gradients. First time I took a bike, on the bike path, it was perfect, but I encountered a hill, it was very hard to go up. I thought Athens, I live in Alimos, a very hilly part of the town, very hard to get through uh, with bikes. I imagine hills and terrain and sediment and all that is also a problem with public transport, um, buses, metros and all that. Uh, so do you think there are significant uh, aspects like this that makes us want to look at Athens very uh, differently in terms of um, how we will transition to a more walkable, sustainable city than uh, a more flat uh, city like London or Amsterdam or something like that. Sorry for the long-winded no, question. Hector, absolutely. Uh, you're right. These factors do play a role. I could add temperature, for example, yeah. high temperatures. Uh, it's not easy to cycle in Athens uh, during the summer. Um, however, um, Putting aside the analysis about the significance of cars, which can be sociological analysis and economic analysis um, and urban planning analysis, um, I would offer two variables that need to be included in this equation. Number one, Athens, as I said, is the second densest city in the world, in Europe. That means that it is, all in all, 32 square kilometers. It's small. We think that Athens is big. It is not. If you want to walk from Sepolia to Ammonia Square and from Ammonia Square to Hilton, this is me giving, sorry, names of neighborhoods for those of you who are actually familiar with the city. These are absolutely manageable walks in terms of time and distance. We make it hard ourselves. That's number one. Number two. What is Athens missing right now? And that is one of the main conclusions of this fantastic analysis that opened my eyes. Urban transport, mass transport. We are, if you look at all the, the indicators and you compare Athens, and Ricky is much better at this than I am, so he should probably elaborate on that. If you look at all the indicators, you'll see that where Athens falls the most behind is in urban transport. Now, Mass transport. Now, that makes sense. You know, London's, London's first tube station was in 1860, and our first tube station was in 2002. 
Nevertheless, uh, we are falling behind and we need to catch up. Um, the so-called Line 4 is underdeveloped right, under development right now in Athens. That's fantastic. It's the biggest public project in Greece today. But if you want to be frank, it's 10 years late. It should actually have begun uh, in 2007, 2008. We should actually be talking about Line 5 now. So uh, there's a lot to be said about investing in public transport and not in roads and highways. There is a rule that, again, the, the Urban Age Task Force of the LSE knows much better than I do, that the more roads you build, the more cars will clog these clog this roads. Uh, one needs to make uh, a decision and have a long-term plan. I think part of your question was also, is flat better than hilly? Right, no. In the sense that there are, I was brought up, was lucky enough to be brought up in Rome, seven hills of Rome. It's one of the most livable cities in the world with pretty good public transport, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, I don't think that's in and of itself the problem. I mean, it, you need to develop um, ways of intervening in the fabric of the city, the geography. Uh, one of the executive master students who's just left the room, as it happens, Sophia, um, was the person responsible for delivering the Transmilenio in Bogota and the cable car system. Mm. That's a city which, for those of you who might know Bogota, nine million people in with the steepest possible sort of edges of, and you know, they have made interventions. So it's, I'm just saying, I don't, I don't think that every flat city is great and happy and every hilly city ain't, you know. That, so I, I think one needs to think of the the, uh, what is the objective? Where do you want to go with it? Sure. Gentleman over there. Yes, hi. Uh, my, my name is Nikias. I'm from Athens. Costa, we know each other from 29 Likavitu Street. Maybe you remember me. Yeah. Um, I used to have a bike in Athens in the 90s. I was probably the only person with a bicycle. It's not an easy city. I also had a bicycle in London later. Going up towards North London, again, it's quite a ride. Um, talking about Jakarta, because you mentioned Jakarta earlier, I have lived in Jakarta for one year. What I'm going to say is that if Athens gets the, the same rainfall that Jakarta gets during the rainy season, we might be looking at a permanent lake for months. Um, so that's something to consider. But my question is something else. I heard Mr. Varoufakis the other day on the telly uh, mention uh, photovoltaic panels on the rooftops of the blocks of Athens. Now, he provided his own theory why these are not implemented, but I thought it was intriguing, um, taking into account that the government in Greece uh, is pushing a policy for uh, solar panels, even on f agricultural farmland so, uh, and houses, I hope. So from that point of view, you being the mayor, obviously you know more, being very close to the government, um, have you thought about this? Has anyone floated this idea? Is it feasible? Is Athens an economy of scale that even could instigate Greek companies looking into that? Because I understand that most solar panels are made in China. So just an idea coming from Mr. Valfax's comment. Thanks. Uh, well, we are talking earlier about square meters. Uh, if you look at Athens from above, from the Nicobetsio, we're wasting so many square meters on our roofs. It's not just that they're ugly. It's actually a waste. 
we had we had moved forward with the, one of our state agencies, one of our agencies actually, mm -hmm. moved forward with providing financial incentives for repainting um, and revamping uh, apartment buildings and houses in Athens. So we designed a tool. Um, our plan was to use the same tool for two other things. Number one, green roofs, so give financial incentives to owners and uh, renters to actually green the roof, and number two, solar, solar panels on roofs. Um, both are absolutely feasible. Um, we were actually ready to, to announce it. Um, I do hope that the new administration will move forward. Can I say on this what you said? It was the Ministry of Finance in Athens that when this was was the minister, um, introduced the green roof, which several years later went dry, and they had to dismantle the collaboration, take it out, and throw it in the rubbish. So what I'm thinking is that you have the Ministry of Finance in Athens, which is probably the, the richest ministry, and they couldn't maintain one green roof for more than 10 years. The Ministry of Finance couldn't maintain the Greek economy, uh, not alone, let alone the green roof at the time. Now, however, the Ministry of Finance um, is is doing really well. Uh, so, you know, people change, institutions change, um, and the question is not uh, why, but why not? So so we're going to uh, draw the evening to a close, Costas, and obviously we want to thank you. But there, there's obviously, there, you know, it's rare that you get uh, someone, you know, we're in a salon with close friends, no one, you know, no gossip here. So it's rare that we get someone who's just been ousted from office, right? You, yeah. um, I think I'm not... I didn't talk to you before, but certainly the polls were in your favor, um, and um, in many ways, and it has a lot to do, I guess, with the politics of Greece, not just the politics of Athens. Um, a, a member of the uh, PASOK, who'd never been involved in politics before, if I'm right, uh, actually then uh, was made a candidate and won. In this small, intimate group here, right, and over this, this little, and, and what, what, are, what were your feelings, and why didn't it work? Well, um, if you look at the numbers, uh, maybe many of you know that it's a two-round system. Yeah. The first round, if a candidate receives 43% of the vote, is elected automatically. If not, the top two contenders move to the second yeah. round. In our case, we lost 33% by 2,500 votes. Yeah. As I'm sure you can imagine... In the, in the first round. In the first round. Yeah. So as I'm sure you can imagine, it's like airplane crashes. At least seven things have to go wrong consecutively for this to happen. And when we're talking only about yeah. two, 2,500 votes, there are many different explanations. Yeah. Um, and in the second round, as you pointed out, it wasn't just about local politics, it was also about national politics. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, and that's the most worrying, 
um, only 20, less than 25% of the people actually voted. Mm -hmm. I think that's very sad, distressing, and mm -hmm. should be, um, should worry us all uh, looking forward. Uh, I think that is the, the short version of the political explanation. There's much more, of course, that uh, can be said. And what I can say, because you asked about my you, feelings, yeah. um, I would highly recommend to anyone who wants to go into politics to actually lose an election. It's an incredibly educational experience. Mm. I'm not saying it's easy. Mm. It's like being fired and divorcing at the same time and in public. <laughs> but, but, um, I see, I see it as I see, uh, as I saw the crisis in my professional life, I see it as uh, a crisis that can also be a blessing mm. in disguise and certainly as a learning moment. And which takes us to what, you know, what next, because I mean, it's very interesting what you're doing at Harvard at the moment, and where you've, you've gone back to, and you're running a program which actually deals with these issues, you know, how national exactly. and, and, and local, which presumably means that you can see a space for yourself in, is it in academia, is it in uh, running the United Nations, is it uh, 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 European Parliament? Uh, we came in a very good place right now. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm doing something that I very much enjoy mm. at Harvard. Um, at the same time, I'm doing consulting in the private sector. I'm spending some precious time with my family and my loved ones. Um, so uh, we will see uh, what comes afterwards. In terms of public life, if I may be very, very open and, and frank, I have the privilege at the age of 45, 46 to, to have seen it all and have done it all. So for me to re-engage in public life, I, I must feel that there is meaning, either in terms of actually articulating um, something different or in terms of being useful. Um, otherwise, believe me, um, private life uh, makes much more sense. Well, I think on the basis of what you've just said and what you've said for this uh, hour and a half together with close friends and uh, uh, wider family who've heard your confessions, um, I think you know, there's, there's a hell of a lot that you can do and make sure that you do it. Costas, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.